perfect. Incredible. Uh, so as I said, my name's Owen, um, and I'm going to be bringing God's word this morning. It's a real privilege to uh, speak this morning and continue in the series that we're looking in on Redeemed on the book of Exodus, and then we'll be going on to Numbers and Deuteronomy a little bit later on, looking at the life of Moses and of the people of God as they come uh, into Egypt, from Egypt, and then further through the wilderness. And we're going to follow their journey over the next few months, which is really, really exciting. I'm going to continue on where, from where Sai left off last week. Um, where Sai left off last week, um, if you remember that he uh, spoke about Moses' birth and being brought to safety because of the faith of a number of women, including his mother, um, including the, the midwives, uh, the uh, Pharaoh's daughter, his sister Miriam, so many people um, who faithfully uh, protected this small boy who then grew up um, and then made some mistakes. He killed someone. Um, and I think we shouldn't gloss over the fact. And I'm going to speak today specifically about the fact that um, these heroes of faith that we look to and that we look at aren't always perfect role models. Um, we're not meant to do exactly what they do, otherwise we'd get into some problems. And I'm going to talk a little bit that, about that as well. So he then uh, goes off, he gets married, he um, gets married to a, a woman whose father was a priest of Midian, and that's where we're going to pick up the story. So if you'd like to turn with me to Exodus 3, we're starting from verse 1, and we're going to read the first 12 verses of Exodus 3 together. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he, fled, he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near me. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that he may bring my people the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. An incredible story, an incredible encounter with God. I'm sure you agree. And 
The story continues of Moses then going back and forth with God. And Moses um, does not have faith in himself. He doesn't think that he can do the job. And eventually, through a lot of back and forth, God says, no, you're going to go. And uh, you're going to go and you're going to have help from your brother Aaron. And um, then the story continues from there. Who longs for this sort of encounter with God? Who, who wants to have this sort of an encounter where you, it's not like, oh, did God, did God say this or did he not? You can't say that when a burning bush speaks to you. Um, you can't have that, oh, well, I think this might have come from God. No, it's, it's definitely from God when, when there's a burning bush. Um, and uh, these mountaintop experiences that we often call them, we, we so often long for, and I know I long for, to have those times where God just speaks clearly. He directly speaks into your life. There is no question as to whether he has done it. It's miraculous. It is amazing. We all long for these things. But... It's really strange because in this mountaintop experience where everything should be really perfect and it should be incredible and it should be sort of blissful, Moses kind of falls short. This really great man of faith, he falls short. And it's only because of the mercy of God that Moses continues to even get back to Egypt. And for that to happen in Moses' life, there are things that change in him over this time. In these two chapters, chapters three and four, Moses' life changes. The way he sees himself changes, the way that he sees God and their relationship changes. And that all needs to happen before he gets to Egypt and continues with what God has called him for. I've recently, uh, I'm not ashamed to say it, I've recently got into golf yeah, I know. Uh, and um, uh, don't worry, I, I, I do actually wear shoes when I'm playing golf as well. Um, basically, I, I went to the driving range a couple of times, and I really got into it, and I really started to enjoy it. And me and Ben often go. And uh, so I was chatting to a, a few people about it, and um, they said, specifically my uncle said, you know what I really wish I'd done is I really wish I'd had lessons I really wish I'd had a few lessons because it really sort of fixes how you play and then you can get better and all those different things. And what I noticed when we had our first lesson was how quickly bad habits can form. I had literally just gone to this driving range, you know, we'd gone sort of six or seven times, just whacked some balls. It'd been great fun. But as soon as I started being taught how to hold a golf club properly, I realized just how uncomfortable it was, just how easy that bad habit had formed in how I hold the, the club, how I swing. And it meant that those things had to be sort of taken away before I could then move forward. And me and Ben were talking about how it's often sort of feels like, you know, two steps back so that you can take more steps forward. And so often when we, when we meet with God, Sometimes he just does that sort of pruning, that taking away, that fixing the bad habits that have come into our lives. And I really feel that this is that kind of a period for Moses over these two chapters, um, which seems really strange because this is meant to be the pinnacle, isn't it? This is the best thing. This is the, the burning bush experience, what we all long for. Isn't it, you know, isn't it meant to just show how amazing he is? Well, no, it shows how amazing God is. <laughs> And actually, how an amazing God can use fallen and challenging people for his 
glory. And isn't that an amazing thing for us? Because I don't know about you, but I'm not a perfect person. (laughs) I've got challenges and and things that are wrong, bad habits that have crept into my life. And God, every now and again, just takes me and just tweaks those, prunes those off. I feel like chapter 3 and 4, to a certain extent, are like Moses' boot camp experience. It's like he's got a time with a personal trainer who's just going to tweak and go, look, we're going to do this. We're going to change that bit. And that's what I really feel over this sermon. I just want to talk about three areas where I think Moses is challenged by God and where God helps him. So I can just get my uh, three points up, if that's all right. Um, the first point that I want to look for, look, look over, is the fear of God and the fear of man. And how Moses falls into this situation where he is, his fear of man is more than his fear of God. The second is this disqualification of self that Moses does throughout this passage. Constantly disqualifying himself. He's saying, I can't do that. Who am I to do this? And then thirdly, that battle between the private and the public life. And I feel in all three things, there's things that God's just going to hopefully sort of press because I know that he's done it to me as I prepared this. And I want you to know that as I talk through these, this isn't me saying, I've got this right. Let me just follow what I do. This is me saying, God has taken me through a really difficult last few weeks as I've prepared this. Like he's really been poking and pressing at these areas of my life. But I really feel that through that sort of boot camp experience, God has really set me free of some things. And I think he wants to do the same thing this morning. Terry Virgo says about this section in his book, God's Treasured Possession, Walking in the Footsteps of Moses. He says, a chapter that begins with such reluctance ends with a man set free and ready for all that lies ahead. And my prayer is this morning that God's going to break chains of reluctance, of fear in this place, so that we as a church are ready for all that lies ahead. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for all that is lying ahead, what God's got for us? Amazing. Let's go into our first point. Fear of man over fear of God. Moses starts really well. When Moses first walks past the burning bush, he is captivated by there's something that is other and different, and he goes to it, and it's when he finds out that the God who is, the God who is speaking to him is the God of Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob, he hides his face in fear. So I mentioned last week that uh, Moses chooses, is, has chosen his heritage as a descendant of Abraham rather than an Egyptian. And this sort of shows here because he knows that this is the God who made the heavens and the earth. This is the God who is in control of all, the God of his ancestors. He, doesn't, he knows that this isn't an idol that the Egyptians has, have made. But it's not long before his fear of man overcomes his fear of God. Firstly, it's the fear of what the Israelites will believe and say. What if they don't believe that you've sent me? Imagine you're somebody who's killed an Egyptian, you've run away, you've spent a number of years away. To a certain extent, you can understand it, can't you? And if I just walk back and go, oh, God has met with me, and this is what you're going to do. 
but he fears what the Israelites will say more than he fears God and what God has got for him. You see, he fears, has a fear of what Pharaoh and the Egyptians will believe and do. What if they don't just roll over and play nice? What are we going to do then? What am I going to do then? He's fearful of the repercussions that will happen. And we know, because we've heard before, that the Pharaoh wanted to kill him. So again, to a certain extent, you can understand this rational fear that Moses has. But we worship a God who is more worthy of our fear and our awe and our reverence And in this passage alone, we see that he has command over nature. We see that with the burning bush, this bush that is burning but not burnt up. It's not like it suddenly turns to ash. He has complete command over nature, and he has command over future events. God knows what's going to happen. He says, the sign of what I will do is that you will come and The people of God will worship me on this mountain. He knows that it will happen. The sovereignty of God is so that he knows what will happen. And because of that, God is so much more worthy of our awe and reverence and fear than any human person. And this is something that Moses doesn't get until actually he pushes God a little too far almost, it seems. And it says that God's anger burns against him. In this conversation where Moses, I think, sometimes falls, I think we do, we fall into this back and forth with God where we, we treat him like another human. You know, I can be more fearful of, of this person because they're going to, you know, cause a problem for me in the workplace or in family or whatever. You know, God, can't you understand? Can't you understand that they're, you know, they're just really powerful. They've got real command. And God's like, I have command over nature. I have command over the future. Yes, they can make your life slightly difficult, But nothing compared to the power and awesome majesty of the God that we worship. Isaiah 8 says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of his people, of this people, sorry, in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people's call conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And the fear of God is not something we often talk about in our meetings always. We don't sing songs often about the fear of God and the dread of God. We like to talk more about the love of God and the compassion of God, which is all amazing and wonderful and true. But we need to be careful that we don't confuse that ever with talking about like the cuddliness of God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a jealous God who is just and right and cannot stand sin and has all authority over heaven and earth and every right. He's a God who can cause a bush to be on fire and not burn up just at his command, just in, in a word, he could cause creation to be made and filled. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? That's what he says to Moses. When Moses says, oh, but 
I can't speak very well. I'm not very eloquent. He says, who's made your mouth? Who decided you could speak in the first place? I know. I made you. Who are you most fearful of? Are you fearful of your friends' opinions? Are you fearful of not getting that promotion if you step out of place, if you ruffle some feathers? Are you fearful of your family's view of you? Are you fearful of your children's view of you or your parents' view of you in a way that goes beyond a, a respect? Are you fearful of your public image on social media, the photos you post showing how perfect you are, how perfect your family are? Are you fearful if they knew exactly what it was like in your house? They might want to not want to follow you anymore. What if that was taken away? What if that public image or that respect or that whole area of man's love for you was taken away? Is that the main thing that affects the path that you lead? Do you fear what the world fears? When you read the news and the world says, be fearful of this, are you fearful of that? I'm not saying having a healthy, rational fear of uh, things that could be endangering you, that's not what I'm talking about, but an over-crippling fear. Robert B. Strimple says, fear is the rich convergence of awe in the presence of the eternal God, the creator of the universe, the holy lawgiver, the righteous judge, and the merciful savior, and a consciousness of being in his presence every moment. There is the convergence of awe, reverence, adoration, honor, worship, confidence, thankfulness, love, and yes, fear. When we submit the fears that we have of man and of life and of all those things that the world tells us that we should be fearful for, and we realize that they are nothing compared to our God, it's such a freeing, freeing thing. And I think that God wants to bring some freedom here this morning of the fear of what other people think or say about you. On, uh, I think it was the Monday, no, Sunday evening, Martin was praying through the different areas of healing that we were praying for. Um, and he read this passage, and something just jumped out of me. It's from Acts 5, and it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hand of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And just that line of, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, really just jumped out to me as I was praying through this. I think often we think that people will hate us or, or, or cause problems. If you stop someone on the street and you try to talk to them about Jesus because you feel that God's done that to you, then... They'll hate that. But actually, I found more often people genuinely respect people who stand up for what they believe in. People genuinely 
interested to have conversations. God wants to work through you. And if the idea of that personal shame that comes for stepping out and being a public Christian is more fearful to you than the righteous anger of God, maybe just there's a bit of change that needs to be done, some priorities. A bit like when I'm holding that golf club, just some, the hand needs to turn a little bit into a different position. Moses lets this fear get in the way of what God has called him to do in this conversation. And it takes God digging that away, showing more of his majesty and wonder. And I think, yeah, God wants to do that today. And at the end, we're going to spend some time praying. And God wants to show some of you his majesty and glory so that the fear of man just fades away into the background of your life and completely disappears. So fear of God and fear of man. Secondly, Moses disqualifies himself. The first thing he does is he disqualifies himself instead of looking at the qualification that God has given him through his calling. Moses looks at his inadequacies rather than God's almighty power. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? They will not believe me or listen to my voice. I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow in speech and in tongue. Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. How how often do we do that? How often when God puts something on your heart or calls you to do something, you disqualify yourself? You say, God, you, I can't be used like that. Or maybe you see someone else step out in faith and you go, I can't do that. I could never do that. God would never use me in that way. Do you disqualify yourself? And I'm, what I don't want to say is that God is going to call everyone to do everything. Moses is right to a certain extent. He is not qualified by himself. And if Moses was just to walk into Egypt and God hadn't told him to do it, yeah, probably it wouldn't have gone well. But he's called by God. And God will qualify those he calls. I don't know if you've noticed that when Moses asks, who am I? Who am I to do this? I am not this. I am not that. God always answers with, this is who I am. Moses doesn't get it. Oh, no, Moses, you're great. You really are. You just don't know it yet, but you've got so many great qualities. Go on, champ. You're going to get them. That's not how God responds because God knows that Moses is very messy. (laughs) Moses needs to focus less on himself and more on God. It links back to that first point that as we focus on God more and his majesty, the things of this world, our failings, they just fade into the background. Sometimes they're not gone. Moses says himself, since speaking to you, I've not suddenly become really eloquent. It's not that God suddenly made him a great orator. 
But as Moses focuses more on the wonder and majesty of God and that God is the one who has called him and equipped him, those other things just fade into the background. But Moses doesn't quite get it. That's the start. And because of that, Moses misses out. Aaron is brought in. Now, obviously, we don't know, you know, we can't say, oh, in another universe where Moses didn't doubt, was Aaron involved at all? We don't know. But what we do know is that there seems to be something that Moses misses out on, that personal one-to-one nature of this instruction and calling because he disqualifies himself. It is at that point God then says, well, Aaron can come and help you. Does that, has that happened in your life maybe? Where you don't give a word that God has given you. You feel maybe God's putting something in your heart. Then someone else brings that word and you go, I wish I just had the faith. I wish I just had the faith to bring that. You don't pray for that person in that situation. You think, oh God, if only I just had the courage to just say, can I pray for you quickly? I know that sounds really hard. Can I pray for you? Maybe you don't share the gospel in that scenario. Or maybe you don't give. And because of that, you haven't given to the church, and so you miss out on the growth of the kingdom in this church being that personal thing and something that you're partnering with. When that is all built, can you stand there and go, actually, no, I, I gave of myself, and I gave joyfully and cheerfully? Or will you go, oh, I wish I'd had more faith? Are you like Moses? Are you allowing your self-disqualification limit what you're involved in? Have you got gifts that you can bring to the church that you don't feel that you can show because you're just saying, oh, I'm not good enough to do that. I could never do that. The church is missing out if you don't bring those things, and you're missing out too. We're a family and have been gifted with so many different talents. But the great thing is, it's not too late. If you've been saying, oh, I couldn't do that, I couldn't do that, it's not too late. This is a season where you can step out, where you can say, actually, I really feel God's gifted me in this area. How can I best serve? Or if maybe you, you've been saying, God, give me opportunities for sharing the gospel, but every time you, you sort of bottle it, God's not going to stop giving you opportunities to share the gospel. Step out in this season. Be encouraged. The church is a safe space to step out in these giftings that God has given you. And if you see someone else stepping out, maybe you see it for the first time, be an encourager. We've all got a role to play. If you see someone stepping out in giftings, encourage them. Say, well done, that was really awesome. Maybe you know that it's difficult for them. Specifically then, encourage them. As a family, that's how we'll grow and we'll develop and we'll build up. We all have a role to play in what God is doing in this town and further afield. And that's really encouraging. So we get this qualification that God has given to Moses. We get the fear of the Lord. And then we get this passage, which is a little strange often. Moses goes off, goes back to his father-in-law, whom the sheep belong, And he starts making his way to Egypt. 
And it says this in verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. That's a change. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched it to Moses' feet with it, saying, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. And it was, then said, it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. wonder if you've ever had that. <laughs> Where you've been walking along and, and suddenly God wants to kill you and someone has to cut off your son's foreskin. Probably not. Um, the circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God formed with Abraham. It was a command given to show that separation of God's people that you are separate and holy. Why does this happen? Why is this brought at this point? Moses wanted to lead the people. Well, technically, God wanted Moses to lead the people. I think it's quite obvious that Moses at points didn't want to lead the people. But he had been brought forward as a leader of the people, as a bringer of God's holy judgment over a people, but he was not privately adhering to God's law. His son was not circumcised, even though God had said that that was the duty of the father to make sure that sons were circumcised. He had not done that in private. And because of that, it affected publicly. Is that happening in your life? Is your private life different to your public? Are you condemning others for their practices, but you know that your life doesn't add up to God's standard. And that can be if you're a Christian or not this morning. Maybe this morning, for the first time, you're realizing that actually your private life matters. That it's not just, oh, yeah, I do this, and as long as nobody knows, it's okay. You realize that what you say matters, what you do matters, what you think matters. Maybe, as Tom spoke earlier, as we've been singing, the whole area of private, sinful acts that do not live up to God's standard is weighing on you. If that's the case, I want to say you're in the perfect place. You're in the perfect place this morning. How is Moses saved from this sin? This decision that he makes, that by law he deserved death. That's what we read. Your blood is spilled. And with that, there's a passing over of God's wrath. He let him alone. And as I say that, if you know the story, that should remind you of the Passover that we see later. That actually the firstborn of every house die apart from those who have taken a lamb and have wiped its blood over the doorframe. And that shedding of blood means that the angel of death passes over. They don't look at the person. They're not going, oh, that's specifically a Hebrew house. They look at the blood, and the blood is what passes over. And as we take that further, we see our sinful lives. I think about my sinful life that could never have lived up to a holy standard that 
God, through his righteousness and justice, could never allow. And what means that I can stand before you as a child of God? It's because of the spilling of blood on the cross that Jesus hung there and his blood was spilled and he took on him all the punishment for our sin, all the wrath of God, the necessary judgment on that sin and he died. And then he rose again and because of that, we can have freedom from our past sins. We can have freedom from our past, future, and present sins. God can bring you into his presence and family today. And if you have never heard this, or maybe you've heard it, but you're not, something's sort of twinging you today. You can know God as your heavenly father today. He will be all of those things still. He will be just. He will be righteous. He will be holy. But because of the blood of Jesus, taking that punishment, and because when you give your life to Jesus and you die with him and then are raised again, which we can chat through a bit more if you want to know a bit more, because of that, all of that past life, it is dead, it's gone. That new life that you walk will be holy and righteous in him. I'd like to ask the band to come up. Moses wasn't perfect. It's very obvious. Neither are we, but God uses Moses powerfully. In that mountaintop moment, God meets with Moses. He changes him throughout this time, and then he leads him into this new amazing calling that he has for him. No longer a shepherd in the wilderness, but a leader of God's people. No longer fearful of man, but fearful of God. No longer disqualified by himself, but qualified because of the calling God has put on his life. No longer is his private and public life different, but he's one person. I just want to ask you to spend some time. We're going to sing a song called graves into gardens which I think is really just appropriate God takes graves and turns them into garden he takes mourning and turns it into joy and gladness and we'll sing that together please just through this time just spend some time if anything I've said to you today has been like poking at you spend this time just laying those things down at the cross. If you know Jesus, go back to the cross, lay those things down, ask for forgiveness. He will grant that willingly. He's already died for those sins. If you don't know Jesus and you want to give your life to him, it's very simple. And if you would like to do that this morning, or if you'd like prayer for anything, please can you just come down to this side here on my right, your left. There'll be some people there who'd love to pray for you. Just going to finish with this. Terry Virgo says in this chapter on this uh, passage, I love the way Exodus chapter 4 ends. Aaron, the future high priest, came to meet the chastened Moses, embraced and kissed him, and they walked on together. Jesus, our high priest, will do the same when we repent and turn from sin. His personal embrace is so tender 
towards the genuinely penitent. And the joy of walking on in his company is what we are called to do. His embrace and his fellowship heals, restores us, and fits us for the task. Let's worship our God. Let's do the business that needs to be done in our hearts. If you'd like to go over and have some prayer, please do. God has called us for a mighty work in this town and a further afield. Let's be ready.